Testament book of Numbers. Uh, we're going to be, again, in chapters 1 through 4 uh, tonight. Uh, we turn to this book, the book of Numbers. I mentioned, uh, I think it was back in, was it September, when we went through the book of Numbers? Anybody remember that? No one remembers that one? That was so thrilling. Uh, this book is called by uh, the Hebrew scholars, Bamidbar. It's the fifth word in the Hebrew text, in the wilderness. So the Jews call it in the wilderness uh, by English translation. Uh, later on, it was translated into Greek by some translators. That's called the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible in Greek. Uh, and they gave it the name Arithmoi, which is translated as numbers. Uh, so our title comes from uh, that Greek translation. Why? Because it has a list. You probably noticed that. It has lots of lists, lots of numbers. There's a census here in chapter 1, really it's chapters 1 through 4, uh, but it has a lot of numbers, and so it got that name, and that name stuck, uh, the book of Numbers. Now, Genesis, if you remember the story of the Bible, Genesis is a story of creation and how God, from creation, through his covenant with Father Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, uh, and then ending in that story with the Israelites, with Jacob, or with Joseph, excuse me, under his protection in Egypt during a time of famine. And then the book of Exodus brings them out of Egypt. Who brought them out of Egypt? Jesus did. I heard that. Good. Who was the human savior that brought him out? Moses, right? So Moses brought them out of uh, uh, the land of Egypt, of uh, the house of bondage. It was God, the Lord, uh, but Moses did so. Uh, brought them out there and brought them into the wilderness. So Exodus is not just a story of the Exodus, but also they're at Mount Sinai. Most of the book actually happens at a static place, at Mount Sinai, where they receive the laws of the Lord. And Leviticus continued to give God's laws, so what God was revealing himself uh, there, uh, as he was revealing himself there uh, at Mount Sinai, that's the book of Leviticus. All the laws, the kosher food laws, uh, the laws for uh, mildew and mold, uh, in your shower at home, right? None of us, uh, none of us wants to admit that we have uh, lots of uh, holes in our walls and our ceiling. Come to the hide house, there's always a hole somewhere. <laughs> there's a broken something. But uh, there's always laws for that. Why? It's very strange. Well, they're the laws of God. And he was showing them as children, uh, he was showing them about himself, his holiness, and uh, what it takes to stand and be acceptable to God. It means to be perfect. And he wanted to show that in childish ways, really, uh, that they had to be perfect. Uh, in every single way. Now, Numbers is the story of the Israelites preparing to leave Mount Sinai. That's the first, uh, the first part of the book, chapters 1 through 10. They're preparing to leave Mount Sinai, uh, and they then journey to a region called Kadesh, and they wander there for 40 years. So wh why was it that the Lord promised salvation to come to the promised land that flowed with milk and honey, but yet they wandered for 40 years? What was the reason for that again? They're disobedience, right? They're disobedience. The book of Hebrews says they didn't mix uh, their hearing of the word with faith. Uh, they didn't trust in the Lord, whether it was just sheer faith, but also by uh, faith as it's revealed uh, in action by their obedience or their lack thereof. And so they wandered for 40 years, and eventually they came to the region of Moab, the kingdom of Moab, uh, on the eastern bank of the promised land. And that's where Numbers begins. Uh, the second generation that had been uh, redeemed uh, from, Israel, uh, from Egypt, they were born in, uh, during the time of the Exodus, in the wilderness, and they were awaiting their entrance into the promised land. Their parents were members of that first generation who failed. They were ungrateful to God for what he had done for them. They forgot his works. They feared the Canaanites more than they feared and reverenced the Lord. And so the Lord raised up a second generation, the children of those who came out of Egypt, and he raised them up to enter the promised land, to go into the land in conquest. We saw that a couple of Sundays ago uh, in the book of Joshua. And so Numbers is the, Isra the story of the Israelites as Moses wants to encourage them uh, and exhort them to go in, to go in as the holy army of the Lord and to be faithful to his words. And so we pick up tonight in the first four chapters. Uh, we're going to move our way through uh, at a decent uh, pace. And chapters 1 through 4 recount this census. And a list of numbers. And so we get our, as I mentioned, the book of Numbers. Now, in these chapters, we learn about the camp of Israel. The camp of Israel. Numbers begins, the first verse, if you have your Bible there. And it says, and the Lord spoke. 
and the Lord spoke. Uh, what a great beginning. Just that God spoke in the beginning, so God speaks again. And so the Lord spoke, and he is saying to the Israelites and to us who hear it tonight, let us hear. The Lord spoke. Let us hear. To whom did he speak? Notice he spoke to Moses. Verse 1 again. Where did he speak to Moses? In the wilderness of Sinai. That's a very large place. In particular, he spoke to him in the tabernacle, or it's called here the tent of meeting. Ohel Moed. The tent of meeting. Now, this tent or tabernacle, it's called various things. It's called the holy place, it's called the sanctuary, it's called the tabernacle, it's called just the tent. Here it's called the tent of meeting. So the Lord revealed himself and spoke his word to Moses in the wilderness as he was in the tent, the tent of meeting. So it's a tent, we get that part, but it's a tent of meeting. Why is it called called a tent of meeting? That's where the Lord met with Moses. If you go back to Exodus chapter 33, uh, briefly, you'll notice a familiar verse, but don't overlook this verse as it ties into uh, our story here, uh, where in chapter 33 of Exodus, we read that Moses uh, used to go into this tent of meeting to meet with God. And we read that in verse 11 of chapter 33 of Exodus, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That's where God spoke. In Numbers 1, verse 1, he spoke to Moses in the wilderness, in the tent of meeting, as he would speak to a friend. And so notice the census then, chapter 1. There's a command here. The Lord commands Moses, take a census, verse 2, of all the congregation. Why? He was to count all the males, we read there, from 20 years old and upwards, And what were they supposed to do? All the males, 20 years old old and upwards, they were to be eligible to fight, to go into the promised land. Remember, Moses wants to exhort this second generation, go in. Unlike your parents who disbelieve, go in. And so take a census, the Lord says. Count up all the men who are 20 years old and above who are eligible to fight in the wars. Recall the Lord's promise to Father Abraham. Way back when, when he said to your offspring, I will give this land. So Genesis tells us that it is the Lord who is going to give the land to the Israelites. I will give your offspring this land. But yet notice here that the Lord is going to use them to actually go in and possess it. In other words, this is yet another example, as I believe I mentioned before, of how God not only determines the end, the goal, the the end, the ultimate result of all things, but also God ordains the means of getting there. And so here, the way in which they were going to receive the land was by their going in as a holy army to fight battle. So in an unequivocal way, we have to take these kinds of passages and say that we are not, 100% not, determinists or fatalists. God determines all things, but yet he also determines to use us in the accomplishment of all things. And so Moses is called to take a census of all these warriors amongst the Israelites to go in. And so Moses and Aaron, verse six, look at verse 16. Uh, Moses and Aaron and a representative, Nasi is the Hebrew term, a chief or a leader, uh, verse 16, was then to count up the numbers of each family and each clan, each household, and so forth. Notice also the date in which this census takes place. We have that in verse number one on the first day of the second month in the second year. The second year of what? The second month of what? What does that reference? The second year of the second month. That's the time their clock started over at the time of the exodus. And so this is a year and two months since the Exodus. And back in Exodus chapter 40 at verse 17, uh, the very end of of, of the book of Exodus, we we were told that the tabernacle was erected on year two, uh, month one, day one. So this is 30 days later. So Exodus 40, Leviticus is all happening upon the mountain of Mount Sinai, but we go from Exodus 40 to 
Numbers 1, you're talking about just a month of 30 days. And so the tabernacle was built, and so a month later, the Lord then takes the census, and he's going to call them out uh, to begin their journey. And notice how chapter 1, verse number 19, concludes this opening section of the Lord's command to Moses, where we read, as the Lord commanded Moses, he listened. Uh, he listed, He listed them, excuse me. As the Lord commanded Moses, he listed them. What is Numbers doing? You'll see this as you read throughout Numbers, in these earlier chapters especially, that there's this constant refrain that Moses listened and that Moses did all that God had commanded him. In fact, even the Israelites were told, did all that God commanded them. But Moses especially, he did what God said to do. Numbers emphasizes, as Hebrews 3 tells us, that he was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. He was faithful, he did, he heard and he did all the things that God commanded. He was faithful in all God's house as a servant, as a servant. But, Hebrews tells us, this was always to be a testimony, to point forward to things that were going to be spoken later. What are the things that Moses, as he's doing these things, he's being obedient to God, he's, he's listening to God, he's being faithful in all of God's house. What is he doing that is pointing forward to things that are going to be revealed later? What are his actions reflecting? Whose actions is he reflecting, I should say? Jesus. Jesus. Hebrews 3, verse 6. In contrast to Moses, who was faithful in God's house, Christ is faithful over God's house. Why? Because he's a son. He's not just a servant. He's, in fact, the Son of God. And so Moses himself is a picture, a type, and a shadow that points us forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. We can read our Bibles and we can begin to understand something of what Moses is there for. He's to point us forward. He's to testify to us of things that are going to be revealed later when the Son of God stepped on this earth. Notice the results of the census, verse 46. We're told there that uh, there were 603,550 men, 20 years old and above. That's a big army, isn't it? It's a big army. Now, it's also one of the more difficult things in the Old Testament because uh, there are a lot of skeptics who like to point out things like that these numbers are just too large, too huge to be true. This would mean that the population must have been then over 2 million people, if not more. How could they move to the desert? How could they, protect, uh, how could they provide for themselves with food and water, their livestock? Uh, the armies around them weren't quite as big, so on and so forth. Amongst Bible-believing Christians, those who take God's Word serious, who affirm the inspiration and truthfulness of Scripture, uh, there are various ways in which to understand the problem. There are some viable ways to grasp this. Uh, we, take them as, we can take them as just literal, despite the difficulties that might bring us. Uh, we can say that the Hebrew text may have been corrupted through transmission uh, throughout the ages. Uh, that word that's used there for thousand uh, can be understood differently. It's the Hebrew term aleph, which uh, some believe it means chiefs. Uh, and so it's not speaking here uh, of exact numbers, but it's speaking of, uh, like of families or, or numbers of chiefs and so forth. Uh, but the point is, however we take these numbers, it's the theology of what the number is trying to teach that's important. Remember how Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 described the Israelites in Exodus? We read at the beginning of Exodus, as they had been there uh, for 400 years uh, in exile, we read in Exodus 1, verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The Lord was multiplying them. It was the Lord who was giving them the growth. It was the Lord who was doing what he said to Father Abraham, that he was going to make his seed like the stars of the heavens and like the sand of the sea. It was the Lord who was doing what Adam and Eve failed to do, to be fruitful and multiply. It was the Lord who was doing this. And so it's about what God is doing. Regardless of whether or not the, the, the numbers are actually in the hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, it was God who was at work. It was God who was keeping his promise. And he was going to send them in and to do his work. Amen? It was the Lord who was doing his work. Now, 
which tribes in the census? So you look at chapter 1 and you can uh, look, for example, there. Verse 20, we read about the tribe of Reuben. Verse 22, the tribe of Simeon. So on and so forth. And you can go down and you can see all the names of the tribes of Israel. All the sons of Jacob are listed there. But which tribe wasn't numbered in this census for war? Okay, the tribe of Levi. And so I pick up at verse 47. But the Levites were not listed, right? They were not listed. Chapter 3 will explain a little bit more in more detail about why. Uh, but while the rest of the tribes were going out to war, or they were supposed to go out to war, go into the promised land in war, the Levites had a more defensive task and calling, we might put it that way. So the tribes were offensive army, and uh, the Levites had the task of guarding uh, the supply chain, we might say. They're there guarding the tents and all the things uh, surrounding it. Moses, we're told in verse 50, was to appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belonged to it. So they, they were like superintendents. Uh, they were stewards of the house of God. They were to take care of the Lord's house, his tabernacle. And among their duties, again, verse 50 says, was to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. So whenever they would journey and they would go from point A to point B to point C and so on and so forth, it was their task to carry the tabernacle. We'll see this more in chapter 4. Uh, they were to take down, verse 51, to take it down. When the Lord said it was time to leave, they were to take it, tear it down. When the Lord said it was time to stop, they would set it back up. That's verse 51. So they carried it, they built it, they tore it down. Uh, they did all that hard labor. Uh, we also learn here where they were to camp, verse 50, around the tabernacle. Again, this is going to be explained in more detail in chapter 3. There's a little chart for you, a couple charts there in that little handout I gave you. Uh, you can kind of visualize that and see what that looked like. Uh, but the purpose, verse 53 was, uh, says, the purpose of them of camping around the tabernacle, the house of God, was to keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. And I believe I pointed out before that this is the Hebrew verb shamar, which is used in Genesis chapter 2 of Adam. He was, to, uh, he was to take care of the garden and he was to guard it. Usually it says tend and keep, tend and keep. But he was to guard is literally what the term means. He was to guard the holy place, the garden, where God's presence was experienced. And so these Levites were to guard the tabernacle, the holy place, God's, as it were, garden on earth, to guard it from outsiders. Look at verse 51. If any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And they were even to guard it from unauthorized access from within the camp. Not just people from the outside coming in, the Moabites, the Canaanites, and so forth, right? But even those in the camp, amongst the people of God, the holy people themselves, who didn't have access to touch or to peer into the curtain inside the holy place, let alone the holy of holy. Which tribes, which peoples would those be who were unauthorized to enter into and to touch the holy things? Everyone else. Everyone, right? Everyone else. We're going to see, even amongst the Levites, they couldn't touch the holy stuff. So God is very restrictive. Uh, in the Old Testament, in terms of his presence, okay, in terms of his presence. And so we read there, verse 52, the people of Israel shall pitch their tents. Um, and verse 53 says, in contrast, but the Levite shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony. And again, tells us why. Verse 53, that there, would be, uh, that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. One writer said it like this, very succinctly. The Lord wants His holiness to be respected. That's what is being taught here. The tabernacle at the center, the Levites, they camp around it. Everybody else camps around them. They were to guard it from intruders, both outside as well as from inside. And if anyone got too close and too near, the wrath of God was going to come down upon them. How so? Verse 51 again. He shall be put to death. And we see examples of that throughout the Old Testament where this actually happened. Now, we read this as Christians. What does that mean for us? 
All of us as God's people in the New Covenant are called a royal priesthood. All believers in Jesus Christ in the New Testament are priests of the Most High God. Amen? And we believe that. We, we talk about the priesthood of all believers. Every one of us is a priest of the Most High God. And so every single one of you, not just us, but I'll say to you in the second person, you, is to be concerned with the sacredness of God's name, His words, His word, and His worship and the things about Him. For example, in the New Testament, don't we read something about people getting sick, even dying, if they took the Lord's Supper in, a, in an unworthy way? 1 Corinthians 11. What does Hebrews chapter 12 tell us about, or chapter 12 tell us about God? It tells us that He still is a consuming fire. Therefore, reverence Him and fear Him in worship. Now, if all of us are a priesthood and all of us are to be concerned with God's words and God's name, God's worship, the sacraments, all the things about God, all the, all the things that we do uh, to interact with God and the things that He does uh, towards us to nourish us and sustain us, how much more so our elders? How much more so our elders to be concerned with the things of God? How much more so even, 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 even more so, I might say, ministers who actually administer the means of grace, the word of the sacraments. We are all to be concerned. We are all to be guardians. We, that's why Paul talks about guarding the good deposit in the New Testament. We are to guard the faith. We are to guard the doctrine. We are to guard the word of God that it comes to us in Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 2 then opens up just like chapter 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron this time, uh, and he gave commandments about the arrangement of the camps. So we're getting a little glimpse already in chapter 1. There's a tabernacle at the center. There are the priests, the Levites, the Levites around the tabernacle. But there's a little bit more uh, about that. So in chapter 2, just to kind of quickly summarize that, on the east side towards the sunrise, verses 3 through 9, on the east side towards the sunrise camp the three tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And verse 9 says that when the tabernacle was to be taken up and they were to begin their march, these are the tribes that went first. Notice the first name there. Judah. Why does Judah get pride of place on the east side, where the entrance was, and the first tribe to get up and lead the march. What's, what's so big about uh, Judah? It's a line of the kings, right? It's a line of the kings. On the south side, so you have a little chart there in the, in the notes tonight. On the south side camped the three tribes of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, and they were to set out second, verse 16 says. Again, in the center of the camp, like we saw in chapter 1, was the tent of meeting, with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps, meaning tabernacle and around the tabernacle are the Levites in the midst of the whole camp of the Israelites. And again, we'll see that more in chapter 3. On the west side, that's behind the Holy of Holies, are the three tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And again, they were to set out third in the march. And then finally, the north side, the tribes of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And they were to go last, as verse 31 says. So again, just to orient ourselves, you can see that chart, you can visualize that, or you can think about it in your mind. Uh, so you have on every side of the tabernacle, you have three tribes on the four sides, right? There's 12 tribes. So east side, south, west, north, three tribes each. And then closer in, you have the Levites, we're told there, the Levites. And then all the way in the center, we have what? The tabernacle, right? The tabernacle. Whose tent is the tabernacle? The Lord's, right? The Lord's. And the, so the amazing thing is that, so the Israelites are living in tents for 40 years. And the invisible God, who made himself visible at times, for example, the burning bush, Exodus 3, the pillar of cloud and fire, he lived among his people in that tent too. So we learn something about God, that he stoops down to the level of his people. Right? He accommodates himself. That's, that's what we call condescension. He condescends. He comes down to the level and experience of his people. And we see that in the fullness of times, don't we? How does God do this ultimately in the fullness of times? 
His son. In the fullness of times, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are, born, who are under the law, to give them the blessing of Abraham. And so God sent His Son to become flesh and to tabernacle among fallen humanity, John 1.14 says. And by means of His death and resurrection, He opened up the Holy of Holies in the very presence of God, as Hebrews 10.20 says, to all who believe. So here, the Holy of Holies, and as we know the Old Testament a little bit, we know that the high priest was able to go into the Holy of Holies one day a year, and we're learning here in Numbers that there's all these Levites who are surrounding the tabernacle, but we're going to see in just a second here that they can't even touch the holy stuff. Only the priest can do that. So God was very restrictive about who could access his presence. But in the fullness of times when that presence that was in the tabernacle at one time became human, And he went to the cross and literally was, as it were, torn in two. And he opened up a way for believers, all believers, Jews and Gentiles, no matter what tribe, tongue, language, and nation they belong to, to access the very presence of God. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit, after Pentecost, that this God takes up residence within what the Old Testament calls the kahal, the New Testament, the ecclesia, the assembly, the congregation. The Spirit of God now dwells amongst the assembly or the congregation of His people. And in fact, as we should know in our Bibles, the New Testament, Corinthians, for example, Ephesians, for example, He even dwells inside the individual believer. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The believer, too is a little microcosm, temple of the Holy Spirit. And one day, this Son of God, our Lord Jesus, is going to return again, and He's going to purify not just souls and minds and hearts, but He's going to purify all things, and He's going to make a new heavens and a new new earth. Where's the tabernacle? Where's the temple going to be in that new heavens and new earth? There's not going to be one. Why not? The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, Revelation 21, 22, are the temple, right? Are the temple. So we have this beautiful picture then of the arrangement of the camp, tabernacle at the center, Levites camped around the tabernacle, the tribes camped around the Levites, around the tabernacle, three tribes to each side on four sides, Uh, the army of the Lord, the defensive Levites guarding the sanctity and purity uh, of the Lord's presence. Now, in chapters 3 and 4, the focus goes from the census of all the tribes to now just the tribe of Levi. Just the tribe of Levi. And it speaks to us about Aaron and his sons. This is, these are the, this is the line of the priests, the priesthood. Uh, and then there are also three great families of the, the, of the Levites, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. So notice verses 1 through 4, there's a little, little opening about Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons. So notice, we're going we're gonna to see that, uh, that all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. That's the big idea here. Okay? So all priests are Levites. Aaron's a Levite. His sons are Eleazar and Ithamar, Nadab and Abihu. They are Levites. But not all Levites, not all Kohathites, Gershonites, Merarites are priests. Okay? So Aaron and his sons are separated out. They're distinguished out. You see that in verse 2 where uh, we, we, uh, his, his sons are mentioned, Aaron's sons, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. So again, not all, priests are, uh, not all Levites are priests, but own the line of Aaron. That was the, line, uh, the family line of the priests. Uh, these are the names of the sons of Aaron, of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to serve, verse 3, as priests. Verse 4 takes us back uh, a little bit in time to Leviticus chapter 10 to remind us of the sad, tragic history of the line of the priest. Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Nadab and Abihu, like a, a perpetual, perennial, living example to us in Scripture. Well, they're not living, they're dead. But an example to us in Scripture of, the, again, the concern that the faithful were to have and still are to have about the holy God and his holy place and his holy things. 
And tragically, when they died, their family lines died. Verse 4, they had no children. So their sin had consequences, didn't it? The result was that during the lifetime of Aaron, verse 4 says, only Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests. So God, and we saw this in Leviticus, and God in one fell swoop cut the, the priesthood down by 50%. Right? There are four priests. There's the high priest Aaron, four sons, the four priests. He cuts them down uh, to size. He thins the herd uh, by, take, by, by consuming them with a the fire from heaven when they thought they were supposed to give God fire uh, here on earth. Now, verses, three through, uh, verses 5 through 13... Now talking about the tasks of the Levites. So there's this big census here, but what are they to do? Why are they separated out? Why are they, uh, why are they the ones that get to, that get to t- camp around the tabernacle uh, closer to God's presence than the rest of the tribes? What's the big deal about them? So the tribe of Levi was to set before Aaron the priest uh, that they may minister to him, as we read there, verse number six. So the Levites were the assistants of the Aaronic priesthood. So again, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. The Levites were the, assist, the assistants of the priests of Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and, and Ithamar. Notice verses 7 to 10. Uh, this echoes the end of chapter 1 that we just glanced at. Uh, the Levites shall keep guard. There's that Hebrew verb shamar shall keep guard, uh, the Levite shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. In other words, the Levites were Aaron's bodyguards. And they're also the bodyguards, the protection, from the entire, uh, for the entire camp of the Israelites. How so? They were to protect not just the presence of God in the tabernacle from impure, ritually unclean people, uh, but also to keep people from becoming um, impure. They were to protect them. They were to guard them. Verse 8 reiterates this as they are to guard the tabernacle. They shall guard, shamar, all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard, shamar, over the people of Israel. Verse 8. In fact, notice verse number 9. The Lord tells Moses, give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. Of Israel. So again, they are the, the, they're the assistants of the priests. They are the assistants of the ministers. Uh, one, of the, one of the ways in which this applies in the New Testament, we see this, for example, in the book of Acts, chapter 6, where, uh, where the, minister, the, the ministry of the apostles of, uh, of, of the word and prayer, uh, they also began to be overwhelmed with just daily uh, offerings and daily care and and, uh, and nurturing and taking care of the physical needs of widows. And so the office of deacon comes alongside the ministers to serve, to assist, to take off their plate certain things, as we see in Acts chapter number 6, so that the ministers of the Word, like the apostles, uh, could devote themselves to the Word of God uh, and to prayer. Again, verse 10 tells us that if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. shall be put to death. Notice verses uh, 11 to 13. Why uh, were the Levites separated out from the rest of the tribes like this? I've taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn. The Levites were the substitution for the firstborn sons of the Israelites. So we, we begin to see in the Levites themselves, not just the sacrifice, but themselves. They themselves are a, an, are a substitution, are an offering to God so that the rest of the firstborn could then belong to their families and so forth. The Levites belong to the Lord as a substitution uh, to the Lord. The Levites shall be mine, verse 12, for all the firstborn are mine. And so they are the substitutes for all the firstborn, the Levites are. And the Lord reminds them why he did, uh, what he did in the final plague, saying, I consecrated for myself, uh, my, for my own, all the firstborn in Israel. They shall be mine, I am the Lord, verse 13. So they're separated out to substitute for the rest of the firstborn, and they're also given to the priesthood to be their assistants, to be their helpers, to be their bodyguards, to be the guardians of the Israelites. Notice there in how, how they camp then. Uh, we, the text in chapter 1 said that the tabernacle was in the center and the Levites camped around it, but how? Where did they camp? The other tribes each had a section, south, 
north, west, east, and how many uh, tribes were on uh, each side. But what about the Levites? We see that in verses 14 down to uh, verse number 37. There are three great families of the Levites. There's Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, verse 17. Uh, they each have sons or clans, verse 20, uh, 18 to 20 tell us. Uh, and what's important is where they camp, okay? So where do they camp? Uh, those little charts probably helpful if you want to look at those quickly. Uh, on the west side of the tabernacle encamped the Gershonites. That's verse 23. And they had a certain guard duty, we're told here. Their guard duty was the tabern- they were to guard the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hanging to the court, the screen for the door, for the door of the court that is around the tabernacle uh, and the altar and its cords and all the service connected with these. So they were in charge of all the curtains, right? All the linens were the guard duty of the Gershonites. They were to protect the holiness of those linens. Now, Are, are, are articles of clothing and curtains actually inherently holy? No. But this is the ceremonial law that God gave. Again, he wanted to teach them, this is what Paul says in Galatians uh, 3 and 4, he wanted to teach Israel at that, at that time and place, they were like little children, and so to teach them these great and grand principles of God's holiness and his righteousness and what it means to be a sinner saved by grace and so forth, he had to teach them at their level. And so he said, these curtains are holy. You touch them curtains, you're dead. That's how holy I am. And so the Gershonites were in charge of all the curtains. And we'll see, we'll see, well, how can they guard the curtains but not touch the curtains and die? Well, we'll see how, how the Lord makes a little prescription for that as well. That's the west side. The Gershonites. On the south side are the Kohathites, the family of Kohath, uh, verse 29. And their guard duty was to guard the sanctuary, verse 28 says. How? They guard the ark, the table, so the ark of the covenant, right? The table, what's the table? The showbread, right? The bread in the holy place. The lampstand, also called the menorah. Uh, the altars, there's an altar of incense in the holy place, and there's also the golden a high altar of burnt offering outside in the court, and all the vessels of the sanctuary that the priests minister, and the screen. The screen is what divides the holy from the most holy place, the holy of holies. Uh, that's what, what verse 31 says. So their, their task was all the holy uh, furniture, right? So you have the curtains, the Gershonites, the furniture, the Kohathites, and the north side encamped the Merarites, so the family of Merari. And uh, verse, verses uh, 36 and 7 give us their guard duty, the frames, the bars, the pillars, the bases, the accessories, uh, so on and so forth. Oh, the, and even uh, verse 37 says the, uh, the, the tent pegs and the cord. So all the wood, all the heavy lifting, uh, all the structural things that actually had to be the pegs and the ground and the, and the panels that made up the walls upon which the curtains hung so that the Ark of the Covenant could then go in and have a house. So you have the curtains, the Gershonites, you have all the furniture, uh, the Kohathites, and then you have all the structural stuff, the Merarites. That's their task, right? That's their task. And that's, you see, where they each have a space. So the Gershonites are on the west side, and you have the Kohathites on the south side, and then you have the north side where you have the Merarites. Now, what side is, what side's not, not uh, guarded then? What side's not camped, uh, encamped? The east side, but that's verses 38 and 39. Why the east side? So the, this is important because in ancient temples, in ancient worship of every ancient religion, which direction did you face when you worshiped and you prayed and you made offerings? You always faced the east. Why? Because the sun rises from the east and the sun is a god. And so you would always face the east uh, and you would you'd make your prayers and offerings and supplications in that direction. Now, the tabernacle reverses that 180 degrees. You turn your back to the east. And you face the west. When you walk into the tabernacle, on the east side, your back is turned. You walk into the curtain, the courtyard, and then there's the, the altar for offering. There's a basin to wash your hands and feet. And then there's a tabernacle. And it's all facing the west. You're back to the sun. Because the sun is a created thing. It is not God. And so on that east side, toward the sunrise, we read, verse 38, meaning at the very front entrance of the tabernacle, camped Moses, Aaron, and his sons, 
Eleazar and Ithamar. So Moses, the high priest Aaron, and the priesthood, Eleazar and Ithamar. And they also had a task, notice, to guard the sanctuary itself, to protect the people of Israel. Right? No looky-loos here. No peeking in. No coming in when you're not allowed to come. Any, and any outsider, notice, it's always not just outsiders, but also insiders. So not just to protect the people of Israel, but if any outsider who came near, they were to be put to death. Verse number 39. So you have that little chart. You can see how they all camp, where they all fit. So you have Moses, Aaron the high priest, his two sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. They're at the east, at the east gate, we might say, at the entrance. The other leave Levitical tribes on each side of the tabernacle, and the rest of the tribes then are surrounding that. And outside the camp is what? That's not mentioned here, but what's outside the camp? That's where the unclean people went, right? That's where women, during that time of month, that's where they had to go. Uh, that's where men who touched a, a dead body had to go uh, until they were ritually pure. That's where uh, those with diseases and so forth had to go outside the camp until they were ritually pure to come back in. Now, we mentioned that the Levites were given a substitution for the firstborn of Israel. You see that in verses 40 through 51 of chapter 3. Uh, and it details that. Uh, Take the Levites for me, the Lord says, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. So this goes back to the Exodus. The final plague was the plague upon the firstborn from the cattle all the way up to Pharaoh's household. All the firstborn belonged to the Lord, and so he took them all. How did the Israelites get out of that? The blood, right? The blood of the, pa- of the Passover lamb, the, the spotless lamb. Now, we're no longer there in Egypt. We're no longer there in that time and place. Now we're out in the wilderness amongst God. So all the firstborn belong to me, the Lord says. So what does that mean? It means that the Levites are, again, substitute. And so we read in verse uh, 43 of chapter 3, that there were 22,273 firstborn males of the people of Israel from, month, from a month old and upwards. So that's uh, verse 40 and 43 combining those. So firstborn sons, 22,273. How many firstborn, uh, 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 how many Levites were there? How many Levites were there? Verse 39. 22,000. Do the math. Houston, we got a problem here. What's the problem? 273 what? Firstborn Israelites who were unsubstituted for, right? Who were unredeemed, to put it in that term. So the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 44, again, to remedy this. Take the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle, instead of their cattle, uh, their mine, and so forth. And so that, that extra redemption price, so that extra 273, verse 46, uh, we're told, verse 47, were five shekels per head. And they added it all up, 1,365 shekels. So every Levite was to cover a firstborn in Israel. There were some leftover firstborn. The Lord then had a price for them to pay five shekels per head. And so everybody was redeemed, right? Everyone was covered. Everybody had a substitute. So you, you begin to see the shadow of Christ. And all these strange laws, there are all these pictures of Christ that there must be substitution. Someone, something must stand in the place of sinners to cover them or else the Lord's wrath will come down upon them. Now chapter 4, chapter 4 then speaks of another census and this time it's all the duties of the Levites. So again the Lord speaks, Moses and Aaron, verse 1, and there's a census of those three families uh, of uh, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. There's a census of the, of the Levites. And the census, though, is a little bit different. Notice it's from, it's men who are 30 to 50 years old. So to fight in war amongst the other tribes was a male, 20 years old and up. Okay? Now, later on, there are laws that say if you got engaged, that kind of thing, you're exempt. But just for now, uh, there are, there's this law about males who are going to fight in war. Amongst the Levites, though, from age 30 to 50, that was the time in which you served. And so you even see little glimpses of that in the New Testament. Read Luke chapter 1, and uh, uh, chapter, two, chapter 1, that is, uh, and you'll see an example of this. Uh, you'll see uh, 
certain people in the New Testament in the, amongst the Holy Family uh, were upwards of age, and they were, they were on their duty, they were on their station, they were in their time of service, uh, and you'll see that. Uh, and you'll also realize, uh, when you, see the, you know, understand this, that from age 30 to 50, that's when a Levite entered into service. This is why Jesus uh, most likely was baptized when he was 30 years old because that was when he entered into his service uh, as he wasn't a Levite, but it was a way of showing that he was entering into his service. So notice the tribe, the family of Kohath, uh, first of all. Uh, They have the most important Levitical service. The most important. Why do I say that? Because it's over the most holy things, verse 4. Okay? Because of the holy nature of of the tabernacle, the holy presence and place of God, Notice this. So back in chapter 3, we read that the, the Kohathites, their, their task was all the furniture, right? Was all the furniture, right, uh, of the tabernacle. But how can you guard the ark when you're not allowed to touch it? How can you pick up the menorah and take it to the next place in the journey if you're not allowed to touch it, Right? How, are you, how can the tabernacle be taken down if the whole thing's holy? The Gershonites, are, they're, they're charged with all the curtains and all the tents uh, and all the linen. But if you can't touch it, how can you actually guard it and carry it and transport it? Well, notice this. So, whereas the Kohathites were to guard the most holy things, verse 4, because it was so holy, God, again, God is teaching them as little children, big spiritual principles through what we might even consider at times silly laws. Notice how verses 5 to 14 detail how only Aaron and his son, so only the priests, remember not not all Levites are priests, but all priests are Levites. So the Levites are not all priests, but these particular Levites, Aaron and his sons, are priests. Only they could touch the tabernacle and deconstruct it, take it down. First, notice They would take down the veil of the screen. This is the big veil that's inside the holy place that divides the first room, the holy place, from the second room, the most holy place. And on that veil, there there were these embroidered cherubim, these angels, reminding them of what God did in the garden. When Adam and Eve were exiled out of the garden, there was an angel there with a flaming sword. And so there were these cherubim who were guarding access into the holy of holies or into the garden of God. So Aaron and the sons were first of all to take down that veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So notice this. Only one day a year the, the high priest could go into the holy of holies and actually see and sprinkle blood on the ark. But when they took it apart, they took the whole thing apart and went on, a, on, on their journey, they took down the veil and literally just covered the ark, right? Showing the sacredness the preciousness of it. And notice now, this is a, these, are, these are the strange details. So everything in the tabernacle, all the furniture, all the utensils, everything is going to be covered up in curtains. It's all going to be covered up in certain colors. So, but I want you to notice, all the things that are covered, they're all covered in, in the same stuff, but there's one fine little detail that we, that we have to see here. So notice this. So that, that, that veil of the screen, that, that great curtain, covers the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, verse 5. Next of all, it was then covered in a goat skin, we're told. And the, the Hebrew term is kind of an uncertain uh, uh, understanding and, or translation. Tachash is the Hebrew term. Uh, I think the King James says like sea cows or manatees. <laughs> Uh, or something like that, and uh, there's other translations, and here the translation is goat skin. Um, we're not quite sure what it means, but it's some kind of an animal skin, right? So uh, uh, it's not as beautiful as, as the other. So the veil covers the ark, then that veil is covered up with a goat skin, and verse 6 says that on top of the goat skin that covers the veil, that covers the ark, is a cloth all of blue. So verse, four, verse 6, just notice that, right? So that's the last thing that's placed over the ark. So just circle that, make a mental note, keep that, uh, keep that handy. So when you would see then all the stuff being uh, transported throughout the wilderness, how would you know where the ark of the covenant was? 
you would see blue, right? So keep that in mind. You, that's, you would know that's the ark. You probably know because the placement of where things were being marched, but it was covered in blue, okay? That's, that's a big detail that uh, you want to you remember there. Um, secondly, notice Aaron and his sons. They went inside the holy place. They took the table, the bread of the presence, and they covered it with a blue cloth, again. And then they would take all the plates, the dishes for incense, the bowls, the flagons for the drink offering, and the showbread, and put it on the table that's covered in a blue curtain. But then we read this. Over all that was a cloth, a, 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 a cloth of scarlet, so a red cloth. But then look at verse 8. What, so there's a blue, then a red, but what's on the outside that you would actually see? Goat skin. What color again was, uh, what was the last curtain, the last covering on the ark that you would see? Blue. What's the thing that you would see when you saw the table uh, of the showbread? How would you know? You wouldn't know. It would just be a goat skin, right? A goat skin. Then the lampstand, the menorah, verse 9. The lamps, the tongs, the trays, the vessels for oil. Verse 9 tells us, again, they're covered in a cloth of blue. But then on top of the cloth of blue was a covering, verse 10, of goat skin. So you're starting to get the theme here. Everything has a final covering, and that final covering is goat skin. Then we read this, uh, the golden altar that was covered with a cloth of blue, verse 11. And then again, finally, the last thing that covered it was a covering of goat skin. Uh, then all the vessels of the service that are used in the sanctuary, covered in a blue cloth. Again, verse 12, goat skin on the, on the outside. Even the ashes from the altar of burnt offering were to be covered up, but with a purple cloth, verse 13. And then all the utensils, all the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, they were all then uh, put together and covered again, verse 14, no surprise, in a goat skin. So if you were to hazard a guess, which piece of furniture is most important just by looking at the covering that, that's placed upon it. Everything's covered in a goat skin. Do you want to wear, do you want to wear a goat skin for clothes? What's the Ark of the Covenant covered up in? Blue cloth. So if you're to hazard a guess, which piece of furniture is most important? The Ark of the Covenant. Why? Why is the ark so important? Why is, it so, why is it more important that it stands out as they are marching through the desert in a blue cloth? What makes the ark so important? It's God's throne. This is God's throne. It's where he sits, enthroned above the cherubim. We read that, that language in the Old Testament. Enthroned above the cherubim. This is God's throne. This is where he sits. And so that is distinguished from everything else as the Kohathites were to take care of them. But again, only Aaron and his sons could touch these things and cover them all up uh, and, and so on and so forth. And only after all that, verse 15, once Aaron and his sons have cover, finished covering everything, then and only then could the sons of Kohath come and carry these. But look at verse 15. There's also a caveat again. They must not touch the holy things. Why not? Why not? Lest they die. So even those who lived and who encamped close to the Lord's presence had to be wary of touching anything. Who could withstand such a harsh law? No one, right? No one. And so we read the Lord gave a particular word that he spoke to Aaron and Moses and Aaron again. Verse 18 saying, let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites. Okay? They have this very dangerous task, touching the most holy things. Covered up, though. So don't let them be destroyed. Don't let their line come to an end. But in fact, verse number 19 tells us, they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. It's not just that they can't touch it so that Aaron and his sons have to come and cover it all up first and then they can carry it. And you notice the text tells us every time they cover something and they put all the utensils, they cover it again, they always put some poles, right, to carry it. It's always, no one ever touches this stuff. It's only, the only thing you touch are the poles. You don't touch the Holy of Holies. You don't touch the, the holy utensils. But you can't even look 
upon them. You can't even look for a moment lest they die. Lest they die. So even the, even the Levites, the holy Levites, the Kohathites, they couldn't even touch or look upon the most holy things. That's how much of a consuming fire God is. Again, all to teach them the strictness and the holiness, the perfections of God. Uh, later on, you'll read about the Ark of the Covenant as it's transported, it's stolen by the Philistines, uh, and they go and get it in the days of Samuel, uh, and uh, they're bringing it up uh, to, uh, back into the promised land, and it's on an ox cart, and the Ark of the Covenant begins to teeter and totter and about to fall over, and one of the, one of the men does what? Just got to steady it a little bit here, you know? What happens to that guy? Toast, right? Toast. Don't touch it. Don't even look, right? Don't even look at these things. Now, the Gershonites also had a duty. Just, uh, they're just a little less, less intense, we might say. Uh, they were to serve, verse 24 says, and to bear burdens. So to carry uh, the curtains, we're told here, uh, going on. The curtains, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, uh, the covering of goat skin on top of it, because it was all covered in a big goat skin, uh, the screen to the entrance of the tent of meeting, uh, the hang to the court. So all the curtains, all the linens uh, were the task of uh, the Gershonites. Uh, all their service, verse 27, shall be at the command of Aaron and his sons. Again, they are, they are servants of the priests. Uh, and their guard duty, specifically, verse 28 uh, sort of their foreman, we might say, on the job was Ithamar. He was to direct all their labors uh, in bearing burdens. The Merarites have the shortest amount uh, of mention. Uh, they are to carry uh, all the tent of meetings apparatus, all the frames, all, all the wood, all the heavy uh, equipment. And again, verse 33 says they're to do so under the direction of Ithamar. So here is this lengthy description, lots of numbers, lots of details, lots of repetition. If you read it, you probably noticed that. All to teach us about this camp of the Israelites. So what's the big impression that we should take away from the camp of the Israelites? What's the big sort of like punchline of the, of the camp? God is holy. God is holy, loved ones. Right? The the Holy of Holies itself, the tabernacle itself, the courtyard, all the utensils, all the furniture, even the wood, even the curtains, even the goatskins. These things are all sanctified and, and, and set apart for the glory of God so that even, even those who are in charge of it couldn't even touch, even look at these things. Only the priests could. And they were to then march wherever God said to go and always they set up that tent and always the Lord would fill it with his presence. God is holy. God is holy. And we get a sense of that later on in the history of salvation where, where, where Isaiah the prophet is in the temple and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe, right? Just the, just the edges of his garment, of his robe, fills the whole temple. And he hears the cherubim and the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy. God is holy. What's the remedy to the, we, we as sinners and the holiness of God What's the remedy to allow us sinners to approach the holiness of God? I'll close by reading from Hebrews chapter 4, a familiar text that you no doubt know. But we see something of that here where the writer of the Hebrews says, since then we have a great high priest. So that Old Testament language. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, so his resurrection and his ascension. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So knowing this, that we sinners have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, he has already made satisfaction and sacrifice and substitution for us. Because of that, he says this, verse 16. Let us, sinners, say by grace, let us then with confidence, contrast that with the, the Kohathite. Don't even look underneath all these layers of curtains to see what's underneath there. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Notice that, the throne of grace. The throne of God's holiness is a throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's thank the Lord. Our great and our gracious God, we thank you for Jesus most of all, all that he's done for us, all that he's done to satisfy the demands of your law and to show us not just your holiness, but also your grace. Give us confidence in him. Give us assurance in him to know that nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away every single one of our sins and to make us new and to prepare us, to prepare us for that day of newness to come where we will see him face to face in the glory of his appearing. We ask all this in his wonderful, his precious name and all of God's people say, amen.